Hello, this is Max Sloves on Unite and Heal America with Matt Matter. I'm sitting in for Matt today, wishing him well. And our guest this afternoon is Max Wilbert. Max is an author, an activist, a photojournalist. Um, Max, you seem like you have a pretty, uh, pretty deep resume. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, to start us off here. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Seattle and, you know, I grew up in a family that was interested in environmental issues, interested in political issues. Uh, so by the time I was coming of age politically in Seattle, the WTO protests were going on. Then you had the, the Iraq war and Afghanistan war uh, break out. So it was a very politically active time. And I started to get engaged in some of the issues that are happening around our world. And dove into the environmental movement. Uh, and so over the past couple of decades, I've uh, been part of a lot of different social movements and people's movements. Uh, I'm a writer. I recently released a book that I co-authored called Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And uh, about a year ago, I was involved in starting this protest against the Thacker Pass lithium mine. Let's talk about Thacker Pass and, um, and lithium mining, but mining in general. Um, give us a little background on, on Thacker Pass um, and, and the, the, the scope and magnitude of the project that is being proposed there. Sure. So because global warming is such a big issue, that's something that I totally agree with. Uh, a lot of people are concerned with how do we reduce carbon emissions. And one of the main proposed solutions to that is uh, transitioning to electric cars and transitioning to wind and solar and other forms of renewable energy. Uh, this requires a lot of batteries because EV cars run off batteries and wind and solar power are intermittent, right? Sometimes the wind isn't blowing. Sometimes the sun isn't shining. You got to store that power sometime so you can have a reliable source. And that means batteries, among other ways of storing energy. So there's this huge boom in demand right now for lithium all around the world, massive explosions in demand. And it's projected to just continue to grow uh, at a very rapid pace over the coming couple of decades. That means that places like Thacker Pass, where there are these big lithium deposits, are under threat. So Thacker Pass is located in northern Nevada, right on the Oregon border. It's kind of close to where... Uh, Idaho, Oregon, and Nevada all come together. Um, it's uh, a pretty remote site on the, uh, this pass between two different mountain ranges where a mining company plans to go in and uh, blow up almost 28 square miles of land to extract lithium. And this would be a multi-billion dollar project uh, it would provide enough lithium for about a million electric cars every year. And it would cause harm to uh, some pretty large watersheds and a lot of very valuable wildlife habitat uh, in that area, as well as some important cultural sites in the surrounding communities. So ever since this mine was proposed, people have been speaking up and, and getting pretty upset about it. But the resistance really amped up uh, on January 15th last year after the BLM issued their main federal permit for the project. And myself and my friend, Will Falk, went out and, and set up a protest camp on the site of the proposed mine. Um, I, I don't think people really, uh, I, I think it's very difficult 
for for someone to to picture and 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 really have a sense of 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 the magnitude and scope of of these of these minds. Um, I don't know. I think like in the, in the popular imagination, like, like mining is something that happens underground, you know, it's like, like maybe it's dangerous, but it's, it's kind yeah. of out of sight, out of mind. Um, can you help explain like, like how these, this type of mine mining uh, process is, is, is different? Um, not to say that the old way was all that great, but, but what are we looking at here? Like, like if you were to look out over one of these mines, like what, what would you see? Well, the, 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 uh, for people to get a sense of how much land we're talking about, a football field is just over an acre in size. And this proposed project is almost 18,000 acres. So uh, it's a very, very large area. If you wanted to walk from one end of the project to the other, you're talking about six or seven miles of walking. Um, so it's absolutely massive. Um, this type of mining project, it would be an open pit mine. So essentially it's a mountaintop removal mine. It's very similar to uh, coal mining in Appalachia or many other types of mining around the world. And the reality is mining is a pretty destructive industry. It's a very destructive industry and it always has been. You know, In fact, there are mines that date back to the Roman empire that are still toxic, that are still draining out uh, toxic materials into watersheds and poisoning uh, communities and, and livestock. Uh, this is just due to the fact that mining is fundamentally destructive. Um, literally, what we're talking about here is you take an intact landscape uh, that has wildlife and plants and is part of a watershed and has creeks and drainages. Um, it's a place where people go to hunt and, and gather plants and medicinal foods and just go to camp and enjoy how beautiful it is up there, especially in the spring with the wildflowers um, and the sage grouse doing their amazing mating dances out there in the, in the spring, this, this uh, threatened bird species. You take all that and you, you bulldoze all the life off the top of the land. And then you use uh, explosives and or heavy equipment to rip open the land. Um, and you know, of course there are things that can be done to, um, they call it reclamation It's basically the, uh, recovery process at the end of the mine. Uh, this mine is projected to last about 41 years, potentially quite a bit longer if they expand into some adjacent areas where there's also lithium. Um, so that's a long time. And the ecologists say that all this restoration work after the end of the mine like this, uh, they, it doesn't really work very well because the, the soil is largely destroyed. The topsoil is gone. It's buried. It's mixed in with this deep mineral soils. Uh, the biological integrity of the community is gone. And so, you know, in a sense, it's like cutting a human being to pieces and then sort of sewing them back together at the end and hoping that they'll uh, that they'll work. It's not going to, it's not going to be the same, obviously. It's not a functional living creature, no more than uh, you'll have a functional living ecosystem at the end of a mine like this. Um, so they're very, very destructive projects and they occur on very large scales. And the mining company Lithium Americas wants to say that this is a green mine. It's a sustainable mine. It's actually good for the planet. But what they don't talk about is 
you know, the 200 semi trucks a day bringing in sulfur sourced from oil refineries um, as their main chemical ingredient for processing, right? So they're talking about switching away from fossil fuels, yet their process is completely dependent upon fossil fuels, um, not just for the transportation of, of the materials and the heavy equipment that they're going to be using on site, but actually for the chemical processing of the lithium itself. Um, so we look at this project as a case of greenwashing, um, a case of a company pretending to be green and pretending to be environmentally friendly when the reality is that they're simply not. There are a lot of sad ironies in a process like this. Um, and as you were speaking, I was kind of thinking to myself, it's, it's, not, like, it's not like pulling a blanket off a bed and, and the only thing you have to do to remake the bed is just put the blanket back on. Um, yeah. you, you, you rip the entire landscape off the earth on a magnitude of miles. Um, the, the impact is going to be uh, extremely, uh, severe. extremely severe. Yeah. Um, and for all intents and purposes, purposes permanent. Is, is that fair to say? Like, like, we, we, could, we could talk about things being... Uh, yeah, coming back to steady state in several thousand years, but um, for all intents and purposes, we're talking about, as you noted, um, Roman mines uh, are, are still yeah. polluting the ecosystem. So, you know, we, the, these are, these are essentially actions that are, they're indelible uh, on yeah. our landscape. Absolutely. Yeah. And with all the other threats to, uh, some of the species who are declining, who live in this region. Uh, the question is, are those species even going to exist in 41 years to have a chance of repopulating uh, whatever restored area remains? Yeah. Is, do you happen to know it, the, the, the state of technology for, for batteries um, right now? I mean, is, is lithium pretty much the state of the art? Is, that, is, is there anything out there? Um, that's as viable as lithium, uh, or does it matter? Would, would, would any alternative just be as destructive to, um, to access? Lithium is definitely the dominant battery technology. Um, it, it, battery technologies are very slow to develop. And so for now, lithium is basically the name of the game when it comes to electric vehicle batteries. Uh, there are some other options for grid energy storage out there. Um, but many of those have their own issues as well, which, uh, you know, maybe outside of the scope of our conversation today, but uh, suffice it to say, lithium is very important for this uh, industry as it currently exists. Okay. So, you know, and if that's what, that's what I was going to say, what we're stuck with, but I think like your argument is we're not necessarily stuck with it, that, that we have options. Um, one of the things that I'd like to, to talk about a little more in, in, uh, in our other segments. Uh, I am Max Loves. I'm sitting in for Matt Mattern on Unite and Heal America. We're speaking today with Max Wilbert, and we'll be back in a moment. Hello, this is Max Sloves. I'm sitting in for Matt Mattern on Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. Today we're speaking with Max Wilbert. Uh, we're talking about lithium mining and some of the issues that, that it, it, very, very serious issues that it poses to uh, the health of 
our environment. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about, Max, is the uh, we're mining lithium, as, as we discussed, we're mining lithium to supply batteries for cleaner vehicles and, and basically consumption of energy that, that is being promoted as, as less damaging to the environment because it leads to less emissions from, from the end source. But what goes into producing that? Um, I, I don't think it's really immediately apparent to a lot of people when they drive something like a hybrid or an electric car, uh, what kind of impacts on the environment went into creating that product? Uh, could you speak to, to some of that in, in the context of lithium mining and, and, and perhaps beyond? Sure. Well, you know, the great Indian uh, physicist and ecologist Vandana Shiva talks about how when we look at uh, clean, we can't just talk about carbon emissions. We need to look at all the ecological consequences from cradle to grave of a given uh, product or technology. And that's absolutely true with electric cars and these batteries as well. Um, the International Energy Agency estimates that uh, electric cars require about four times as many critical minerals as regular uh, gasoline-powered cars, which are polluting and destructive themselves, of course. Um, environmentalists have known that for many decades. Uh, but it's a, it's a mistake to assume that electric cars, simply because they have no emissions coming out of the tailpipe, uh, don't have any ecological harm associated with them. In fact, producing an electric car releases something like nine tons of greenhouse gas emissions on average. And that means just very simply, the more electric cars you produce, the more greenhouse gas emissions you're going to release. Now, there may be less greenhouse gas emissions released than if you had built fossil fuel powered cars instead, but you're still producing quite a bit of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, this is a major problem because scientists are telling us that we need you know, 80, 90, 100% emissions reductions within a pretty short time frame, within the next several decades, to avoid the worst impacts of global warming. Uh, and of course, that's not even to get into the issues in terms of uh, biodiversity, uh, water quality, toxic pollution, the other environmental issues that many of which are just as serious as global warming, but perhaps get less uh, coverage in the media than they should. Um, you know, this issue with lithium, I think, is very important because it's a great example of a false solution. You know, it's a great example of an industry, the electric car industry, that serves to make trillions of dollars off of this transition to electric vehicles, literally trillions, um, running a very effective marketing campaign to convince people that their cars are not only not destructive, they're actually good for the planet. And they're using one snippet of truth. That's always the most effective lies, right? Are based on one small truth. And then they build a larger untruth around that. And the, the, the truth is that they don't release carbon out of the tailpipe. Uh, the, the larger untruth is that they're good for the planet or they're ecologically friendly. That's just completely not true. And as long as we're living in a consumeristic society in which uh, most people own or at least aspire to own, you know, a two-ton hunk of rare earth metals and iron and plastics 
that sits in their driveway and that they use to hurdle around the planet at vast speeds to get them to work and recreation and play and family and all these different things and to them all perhaps um, is it's a delusion to think that that's environmentally friendly. And so one of the arguments that I've been making from the beginning of getting involved in this campaign is that, you know, the, the situation at Thacker Pass really calls us to start thinking more deeply and more critically about uh, the ecological crisis that we're facing, the, the biodiversity crisis, the desertification crisis, the, the deforestation crisis, uh, all of these different issues and how they are coming together in our time and how our way of life our consumeristic, industrial, high-energy, modern culture plays a very big role in that. And uh, I think that it, it calls us to, to consider much larger changes than just swapping out what's under the hood of our cars. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty, um, I mean, for all the bluster and opposition to... Um, emissions mandates and, and reduction of emissions, uh, really all it's demanding is that everyone buy a new car or, it, or it's encouraging a marketplace for everyone to replace this, this huge object uh, with another huge resource intensive object. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess that it, it just, it begs the question, what, what are the alternatives? You know, how, how do we it, it, there's so many layers to this that that, that kind of drive me nuts. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and one is the, is is the way even the way we talk about it, um, it you know, the way we talk about uh, global warming and and carbon emissions. Uh, I, I, I do there's a marketplace for ideas as much as there's a marketplace for objects. And I, I get a little frustrated sometimes that we're not talking more about water pollution and other point source pollutions. Um, because those those have really really immediate impacts on on people's health and welfare on ecosystems health and welfare. Um, is there a sense of of the potential impacts that uh, that the project at Thacker Pass would have on water resources um, in that area? Absolutely, yeah. This project would use four point six million gallons of water per day. Um, that's in the driest state in the country, Nevada. And that water would come from uh, the Quinn River Valley, which is an aquifer that's already over-allocated. They're already pulling more water out of it than is being replenished by rain and snow every year. So it's fossil water. It's, it's essentially a, a, a different form of mining. You know, instead of mining minerals, they're mining water, this old ancient water down in the ground. Um, and it's already, they're already, you know, drawing down this reserve of water and desertifying this state. I mean, longtime Nevada residents know that uh, the state's in a prolonged downward trend when it comes to uh, surface water, spring flows, river flows, and so on. Um, and global warming is, is exacerbating that problem. And so, you know, more mines like this are not the answer. There are thousands of lithium mining claims all across the state of Nevada right now and, uh, and, and other types of mines as well. And each of those would use quite a bit of water. Um, so the impacts to the water, not just in terms of, of the consumption of water, but also water pollution 
are a big, big concern with this project and, and other types of lithium mining, not just here, but elsewhere around the planet as well. If you look at lithium mining in, in Chile, in Australia, in Tibet, in other areas around the world, you see huge amounts of water use and, and water pollution. And you see local communities being very concerned and upset about the impacts this has on, uh, on wildlife, on their ability to survive in these regions. So there's the, there's the upstream impact of, um, of overtaxing the water resources necessary to operate the mine. And then the, imagine the, the, um, the downstream impacts are, are pretty severe as well. Absolutely. Yeah, this project would, you know, one of the main things it would do is, is dig up and mobilize some of the potentially dangerous minerals that are securely locked underground right now. So things like arsenic, antimony, mercury, uranium, uh, radon, other toxic radioactive and hazardous substances that right now are pretty much safe deep underground. Uh, this project would dig them up. It would, uh, put them in the water and it would aerosolize them and turn them into dust that would then blow onto the nearby communities as well. That's horrifying. I, the, the, the aerosolization of these, these toxic materials, that is not something that, that had even crossed my mind. Um, and, and that, that's a real concern. I and mean, that's something, in, you know, I, our office is located in Southern California and um, you know, there, there are various parts of Southern California that, that, uh, are, are kind of famous for for this phenomenon that, that you just described, uh, an aquifer that was that was overdrawn and and the desertification re resulting in these dust storms that uh, affect communities not just nearby but um, but sometimes hundred miles away, um, and it, it and so it, it it kind of brings us back to. I, it, the, the, these two issues I think are so private, you know, the, the, the way we talk about these things, or the, the, the marketplace of ideas, the way things are, are sold to us. Um, you talked about greenwashing earlier um, and our, our patterns of behavior that, that is, that is um, you know, one of the most difficult things that people find in their life. We have new diets every single year, every single, every three months, there's a new diet because people have trouble changing their behavior. You know, if you just picked one and stuck with it, you'd probably be fine, but we always need a new one because we have problems changing our behavior. So that's something I'd like to talk about a little bit more in the next segment. I'm Max Slopes. I'm sitting in for Matt Matter today on Night and Heal America with Matt Matter. We are talking to Max Wilbert, and we'll be back in a moment. Thank you. Hello, this is Max Slobes. I'm sitting in for Matt Matter today on Night and Heal America with Matt Matter. We're speaking today with Max Wilbert, author, activist, environmental activist, uh, specifically for, our for the purposes of our conversation today. And Max, I... I just say I, I I normally know a little bit more about the things I interview people about, but but there there are a few things that I I, I don't know about. So I'm, I'm very excited to have you here to, to speak about them. One is is the concept of Jivon's paradox. Um, can, can you speak to what what that paradox is and how it relates to 
some of what we've been discussing in terms of consumption and uh, human behavior? Sure. Well, you know, Jevons' paradox, it comes from, from England in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. But I like to explain it using an analogy uh, that makes sense to people now. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question, and I want to hear your, your genuine, you know, just gut response to it. Which would be more harmful to the planet? If every car on the planet got one mile per gallon of gas, or every car on the planet got 100 miles per gallon of gas? My gut, re my gut reaction would be that if every car on the planet got one mile per gallon, that, that would be worse. So Jevons' paradox is basically the idea that that gut response is sometimes wrong, that more efficiency isn't always better for the planet. And the reason for that sort of becomes clear if we explore this idea a little, a little more, because if every car on the planet gets 100 miles per gallon, all of a sudden driving is really cheap, right? So people have much higher mobility than they used to have. That means people are going to drive more. The culture is likely to become more car dependent. You're likely to influence things like suburban sprawl and urban planning policy and how cities are built. You're likely to influence government budgets to build more parking garages, uh, freeways. You are likely to create economies of scale where because driving is so cheap, everyone wants to drive. More people can afford to drive. And so more people buy cars, which drives down the cost of each individual car. And so more and more cars are built. So 100 miles per gallon doesn't only increase the efficiency of each person's individual car in a vacuum. It creates a very different social and cultural and economic situation around cars in general, right? Now, the opposite would be true if every car got one mile per gallon, because it would create a very strong disincentive to driving. Right? Driving would be incredibly expensive. It would cost you know, multiple dollars to run to the store every time you went. If you wanted to go visit your family 100 miles away, you're looking at spending significant money on, on gasoline to get there, hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Right? And flying would basically be out of the question if, if the engines were correspondingly inefficient. So mm. if every car got one mile per gallon, uh, all of those incentives are pushing in the opposite direction. They're pushing the culture to incentivize walking and bicycling and human-powered transport. They're pushing towards localization of our culture and towards uh, local food, local economies, local government, local political structures, walkable communities, uh, local agriculture, and so on. So uh, that's obviously sort of a dramatized example, but it helps us understand this idea that efficiency isn't always good for the planet. Sometimes efficiency is good for our wallet or good for, you know, a business's productivity, but it's very bad for the planet, in fact. And I think this helps us to explain some of the issues that we're seeing with uh, these things like electric cars, right? Electric cars are more efficient than gasoline-powered cars. They're cheaper to run. Um, they have some advantages when it comes to efficiency, but that's efficiency from our perspective as people who buy industrial products, as people who are responsible for their maintenance, as people who are paying for the electricity or the gasoline to run them. That's not from the planet's perspective. And so this one word efficiency 
can have two different definitions. You know, you can, you can use that efficiency to use less, right? If in that theoretical world, the hundred mile per gallon car was driven the same amount as the one mile per gallon car, then yes, it would be better for the planet to have a hundred mile per gallon car because vastly less gas would be consumed. But that's, that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? None of these changes happen in a vacuum. And so Jevons paradox more broadly helps us explain that technological advancement does not always produce the positive ecological outcomes that we want to see. And, uh, you know, another example of this is the American home, which is that uh, the average efficiency, energy efficiency of American homes has gone up by quite a bit over recent decades. But at the same time, the size of the average American home has grown correspondingly. And so the overall energy consumption has stayed the same, but houses have gotten bigger. And that means people need more furniture. They fill their houses with more products. They have larger garages, so they keep multiple cars in them instead of one, maybe, as it perhaps used to be more common. And so the embodied energy that's used to build the house itself, the wood, the drywall, the, the paint, the lighting fixtures, and so on, um, all of that is increased. Um, and so uh, the impact on the planet is actually increased as well. And so it's another example of where we have these counterintuitive results and where we need to think a little bit more deeply about these issues. Um, and I think this is a case, these type of situations are where we're really vulnerable to be taken advantage of by advertisers, especially. I think it's really easy to get fooled in a situation like this um, when somebody says this product or that product is better for the planet. Um, we need to investigate that because sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Um, but oftentimes what is being lost in that whole conversation is whether or not uh, we should be living in a consumeristic society in which our sense of well-being is based on how much we own and how much money's in the bank. And really our sense of national prog progress and well-being is based on GDP and is based on economic growth. So these are really some much larger questions that I think we need to be asking. And if you look at countries like New Zealand, Bhutan, there are a few countries around the world that are really leaders in trying to change those measures and really look at things instead of, of wealth to really look at things like people's health and well-being and happiness and to measure those. Because often those really aren't linked to wealth as long as you've got your basic material needs taken care of. Um, and I think if you look at the rates of, of mental health issues, of, of depression and anxiety that we have in our culture here in the United States, um, I don't think this way of life, this consumeristic culture, this workaholic culture that we live in is really making us happy. It's not really, uh, you know, doing great for a lot of us here. And so I think that, you know, it would be a lot better for us and for the planet if we started to build a different conception of what we want, you know, as a society, what we're really here for, what we're really here to do. I don't think we're here to accumulate goods and accumulate wealth and uh, anything like that. I think we're here to, to have a human experience. And I think that the more we can do that uh, in harmony with the natural world and with these other forms of life all around us, not only the better uh, 
lives we're going to have as individuals, but the better world we're going to leave behind for our children, grandchildren, and future generations. Yeah, I, th- I think when, when people see something firsthand, they, they value it more. When people see something firsthand, they appreciate it more. Um, when we externalize the cost of production to uh, remote communities, oftentimes entirely offshore, uh, I mean, that, that's one thing that I think you and I have been able to witness in our lifetime is, uh, you know, the externalization of the cost of production, you know, just ship, ship production offshore so that you, you don't have to think about the impact on workers. You don't have to think about the impact on the environment. Like it gets out of sight, out of mind. And so you know, as you were talking about Jevin's paradox, it, it, it just got me thinking in terms of, you know, even if, even if the 100 mile uh, per gallon car is, is, is favorable, it, 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 it's not favorable if, if it includes, if you're achieving that efficiency through costs that you're not actually paying for. Uh, you know, if you're subsidizing the low cost of an efficient car by stepping on the neck of some worker in a foreign country or polluting the water of an aquifer in a... In, in, in Northern Nevada, um, you know, are you really paying for a, a cheaper car? Are you really paying the true cost? Uh, yeah. and, and I think like that, that's where I see sort of a dovetail between um, you know, the, the traditional economic philosophies that our nation has been built on and um, alternative ways of approaching the way we consume. Is is okay? Well, well, sure. Like, let's think of things really transactionally. We we haven't been actually participating in the transaction. <laughs> uh, we haven't actually been paying the true cost of the items that we use. So, what are we subsidizing that on? We're subsidizing that on on uh, marginalized communities, on uh, the the present and future of of the environment that we hope to to enjoy and benefit from. Um, I'd like to talk about these things a, a, a little bit more uh, in, in, our, in our last segment and, um, and also help direct people to resources they can access to, to think about these concepts a little more or see them. You know, you, you've laid things out so well with such clarity uh, to direct people to other resources where, where they can see like really clearly you know, like how these things are connected, how they might be able to be changed. Uh, I'm Max Lowe, sitting in for Matt Matter today on Unite and Heal America. We're continuing our conversation with Max Wilbert about lithium mining, patterns of consumption, what we can do to possibly change uh, to make things a little better. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you. Hello, this is Max Slopes. I'm sitting in for Matt Matter today on Night Heal America with Matt Matter. Sending our best to Matt. Uh, hoping he gets well soon. And uh, continue our conversation with Max Wilbert. We've been talking about um, issues related to lithium mining, um, patterns of consumption. Uh, it, the way all these things tie together and is sort of like the, the, the tapestry of of behavior and impacts on the environment, um, both immediate and long-term. And 
you know, one of the things that this, this keeps coming back to, these types of conversations keep coming back to, is, is human behavior. Um, and so, you know, what can we do to change the way we approach these issues and the way we think about these issues and the way we act most, most probably most importantly? You know, even if there are small shifts and changes, it, it's, it's really action in one way or another that, um, that will collectively have the greatest, the greatest impact. Um, Max, I, I know um, this last year you helped co-author a book titled Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Uh, this was published last year. Uh, 2021. And I, I guess, given my intro, what leaps out to me about the title is the word do, you know, what we can do about it. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this book and, um, and perhaps some of the, some of the insight that, that it, may, it may give us as to the types of things that we can do about the issues we're facing right now? Sure, sure. Well, I think one of the most important arguments that we make in the book is that, you know, global warming is a very serious issue. And a lot of people are very scared with it for about it for, for good reason. You know, I actually spent time in the Arctic myself. I've walked on thawing permafrost. Uh, you know, global warming is, is pretty terrifying. And, and what it's doing to our world is terrifying. It's also a symptom. It's not the root cause of our problem. It's a symptom of our culture's broken relationship to the planet, to ecology, to the land. And we're not going to address that symptom and expect it to go away. It's a little bit like a doctor uh, saying, okay, you've got a fever. I'm going to throw you in a, a tub full of ice and not investigate at all what's actually causing this fever, whether it's an infection or virus or something else. Right. Um, so, we really are making the argument that we need to think more deeply about these issues and we need to fundamentally change our relationship to the planet. And one of the ways that we can do that, that begins, I think, in each of us, in, in our hearts, in our minds, and the way we relate to the world, is we can shift our allegiance. And what I mean by that is that ultimately, every breath of air we take, every bite of food that we eat, every stitch of clothing that we wear and, and the roofs that we live under comes from the planet. It comes from this world and is provided by a living world. And that's where we need to have our allegiance, right? I think that so often we get confused into having allegiance to our gadgets, our phones, our jobs, to a political party, a certain ideology, uh, a certain country. But really, when it all comes down to it, we are all fully dependent on this planet, planet Earth, the only known habitable planet in the universe for our existence and the existence of future generations. And the culture that we live in, the economy that we live in, is destroying the ability of this planet to support life. Um, that is a disaster. And I think that once we begin to shift our allegiance, then we start to understand more easily that things like electric cars aren't necessary. They're actually luxury goods. You know, things like iPhones and, uh, you know, 24-7 access to Netflix are not necessary. They are luxury goods. 
And they come, all of these modern conveniences that we become so used to that I enjoy just like anyone else, right? You know, I enjoy watching a movie as much as the next person, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I don't enjoy it or that it's not enjoyable. What I'm saying is that these are luxuries and they come with costs, like you were saying earlier. And we need to be very honest about those costs. And I think we need to change our behavior because some of those costs are not worth paying for what we're getting out of it. And, you know, Lewis Mumford, one of the greatest American philosophers of all time, he talked about what he called the magnificent bribe, which was this idea that, you know, in the past, we used to live under kings and tyrants and rulers like that, emperors, right? Um, But when fossil fuels came onto the scene, all of a sudden, energy and material goods were so abundant that almost everyone in the society could partake in those benefits to some degree. And he called this a magnificent bribe that allowed people to uh, sort of participate in the empire or the dominion over the planet. And, you know, Mumford, uh, one of his conclusions was that this is ultimately a self-destructive process. It's a suicidal blowout. You know, some writers have talked about this as being like a party where everyone gets way too drunk and does way too many crazy drugs. and it's only going to happen one time and then it's over. You know, the easily accessible fossil fuels are gone. And so they're down to fracking and deep sea ocean drilling and uh, tar sands, right? Um, The same is true of pretty much every other major mineral on earth. Most of the old growth forests have been cut down. The, the, The soils in the great plains are really not in good shape. The ocean, the life in the oceans is, is very heavily degraded. Um, And, what have we gotten out of it, right? We've gotten this sort of modern consumer culture blowout that is unlikely to last far into the future. And I think if you take a historical perspective, this is actually pretty common for empires or large societies, dominant societies and civilizations to undermine their own ecological foundation and then collapse or fall apart. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean overnight. Oftentimes that, that takes generations for that, for that collapse or sort of simplification of society to play out. But I think it's likely that's the direction we're headed in uh, because we are fully dependent on these things, you know, and we've seen the fragility of these global systems, these global supply chains with the COVID crisis. Uh, we've, we've seen how dependent we are for basic necessities like food and different types of products uh, on things that are shipped from thousands and thousands of miles away. Uh, I don't think that's going to last into the future. And so my hope really is that people will continue to fight destructive projects like the Thacker Pass lithium mine. They're happening all over the world, unfortunately. And each one of these projects that happens is another nail in the coffin of, of global ecology and, and climate stability and environmental stability as a whole. Um, so the more land, the more wild places we can protect, the better. I think at the same time, people need to be pushing politically for uh, vision around these solutions because I think our political leaders largely aren't willing to engage on these issues. They're either living in a fossil fuel delusion or they're living in a delusion that electric cars and and windmills will save us and everything else can remain the same. We'll just swap out the energy source and we'll be fine. I think both of those are total delusions. Um, And I think uh, the fossil fuel delusion will lead us 
into a, a climate apocalypse and the the delusion around electric vehicles and, and wind turbines and solar um, will likely lead us into that same apocalypse, perhaps a little bit slower. Um, but I think it's a, it's a similar false solution. And so, you know, in our book, we really talk about putting your faith in the natural world because this planet is really good at healing. And so often the problem is us. The problem is something we're doing wrong. And when we get out of the way, when we stop destroying, the world starts to flourish. And you can see that over and over again, whether you're looking at Yellowstone or Heart Mountain Refuge or uh, you know, different marine reserves or whatever area you want to talk about. Um, when we are willing to humble ourselves and participate in the ecological uh, dance of everything all around us, rather than trying to dominate, uh, then we can live good and the planet can continue to thrive and flourish. So that's what we're trying to do at Thacker Pass is, is push back on this idea that we need these luxury goods called electric cars and uh, show people a different way. Hey, just tied up why um, Thacker Pass is, it, 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 it's, it's not just a, a location. It's not just a mine. It, 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 it is a project that is going to have devastating impacts on the environment around it. But I, I really love the way you frame it as, as important to recognize as part of um, a, a, a greater uh, expression of human behavior that, that, that we need to, yeah. at the very least, recognize. You know, I think that that's really the problem I see right now is that like what you're describing is something that that people have trouble even recognizing, and we all know that like, like until you recognize a problem, it's really hard to address. Um, so I, I I look forward to reading Bright Green Lies. Um, I hope other people will take a look as well. Are, are there other resources, uh, websites, organizations that people can turn to to learn more about Thacker Pass or any of the other issues that we've discussed today? Yeah, if you check out Protect. Thackerpass.org. That's T H A C K E R, Thackerpass.org. You can find uh, essays, more information about the mine, and contribute or get involved in, in their opposition to it. Uh, we're hoping to have some good news in the next week or two. So keep your eyes peeled and we're going to keep up the fight. And we hope you'll join us and, and also get involved in whatever fights for the living world are happening in your area. Uh, Max, your work is courageous. It's important. And uh, I'm so glad that, uh, that we had the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been Max Slope sitting in for Matt Mattern on Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern. Uh, today we spoke with Max Wilbert. Uh, please Take a look at the book he co-authored, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, and explore his activism at the Thacker Pass Project. Thanks so much. Yeah.